Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who has had over 18 years of NFL experience at various levels of NFL personnel departments and front offices. He was hired by the New York Jets on February 19, 1997, as the Director of Player Contract Negotiations. Over the years, he served in numerous administrative positions with the team, including Senior Vice President of Football Operations and Assistant General Manager, and then succeeded Terry Bradway as the team's general manager in 2006. His tenure was a resounding success for the New York Jets. He had produced three playoff trips, two AFC championship games, one on only one season under 500. He then joined the Miami Dolphins as a consultant in August of 2014, served as the Finns Executive Vice President of Football Operations until 2018. It is a thrill to welcome the man known around these parts as Mr. T, the one and only Mike Tannenbaum to 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Mike. Hey, guys. Great to be with you. Awesome to have you on. And before we talk about everything that goes on into an NFL draft from a GM's perspective and a bit about this year's draft, let's talk a little bit about your career. You graduated from Needham High School in Massachusetts 1987. You received a degree in accounting and a minor in sports management from the University of uh, Mass Amherst. You actually interned for the Pittsfield Mets. So what were some of the duties that you performed for the Mets at that time, and what did you learn from that internship that you took with you going forward? Yeah, it was just a way to get my foot in the door, and you know, when you want to get into sports, um, you start at the bottom and do what's ever asked of you, and uh, it was a great experience. It kind of confirmed for me that you know I had a passion to work in sports, and you know, I believe in saying choose a job you love, you know, every day in your life, and uh, it was really my first experience after college, and kind of crystallize what my goal So then you, you then graduate from Tulane University Law School where you earned the certificate in sports law. While at Tulane, you also interned for the New Orleans Saints personnel department. So having been around two sports as interns at that point, what made you start leaning towards football as opposed to baseball? Yeah, it was uh, always been my passion, and uh, I was really at the right place at the right time um, in terms of like, the salary cap started to come um, in, into like for the first time in 75 years, there was a cabinet, so it, it started to formulate in terms of uh, how teams were going to run. And when I graduated, I had worked for a year and a half uh, for the Saints um, while I was in law school, and then was able to get a job working for the Cleveland Browns uh, when I graduated. So you're then hired by the New York Jets February 19, 1997, as the Director of Player Contract Negotiations. Over the years, you served in numerous administrative positions with the team, including Senior Vice President of Football Operations and Assistant General Manager. 1997 is also the year Bill Parcells is named head coach of the New York Jets, having replaced uh, Rich Kotite off of a franchise-worst 1-15 record. Um, what was it like working for Bill? And what's, you know, so many people say that he taught them so much. What was your biggest takeaway from Bill? Yeah, I, I would say the same thing. So much about how to build a football team, how to evaluate talent, but about really like leading people. And, um, you know, he was tough and smart, had incredibly high standards, but he was also nurturing and understanding and caring and, you know, there was a lot of sides to him, and um, I was fortunate to be around for a number of years, and he was a head coach at GM and taught me so much, you know, so much more than just about football, you know, about life as well. 
know, it's interesting because then you're also there when Bill steps aside and after the 99 season, there had already been an arrangement with the team management to have Bill Belichick succeed him. As we all know that Bill Belichick would be the New York Jets head coach for one day. So what goes through your mind when you hear Bill utter those 10 words, I resign as head coach of the New York Jets? And do you think the Jets would have had Patriots type of success had Belichick stayed on with New York? Yeah, obviously that was like a surreal moment, you know, just in terms of like, you know, no, that's really saw it coming that we're you know, in the building every day and, you know, Coach Parcells had, you know, retired and Coach Belichick resigned and, you know, Al Gro wound up being our head coach and, you know, uh, I've known Coach Belichick for a long time. He's obviously done an incredible job and uh, going back all the way to his days in Cleveland and um, I think he would have been successful wherever he was. He's, you know, very smart, very detailed oriented, you know, holds people accountable, you know. He's been a great coach for, you know, obviously a number of years for a lot of reasons. You know, one of the differences, I think, maybe between the Jets and the Patriots is the owner and the involvement of the owner, or maybe not. So you take a look and you look at the, the Patriots and you see Belichick and you see Kraft, the owner. How different is the structure involving the Jets? Now, you have a different Johnson at the head of the team now, but Woody and, and Chris... What difference is it in terms of the structure? And people talk about the Jets' odd management structure, and maybe it leads into your job working with it and reporting to the owner and having the coach report to the owner uh, rather than the coach reporting to the GM who reports to the owner. Yeah, you know, every situation is different. And um, unless you're there every day, it's really hard to comment on it. I can just tell you, like, my time with the Jets was great. Um, you know, I got to know Woody and Chris Johnson very well. They were very supportive of the team. Uh, they were around a lot, gave us all the resources for us to be successful. Obviously, you know, we went to the playoffs a number of times, be it, you know, under Coach Parcells. We went to the championship game a couple of times under Rex, once we went to the playoffs with Coach Mangini. So, um, you know, in terms of my experience, I could just say it was, it was really good. I thought the lines of communication were clear, efficient, and if it was Eric Mangini or Rex Ryan, it was easy to stay on the same page. So another, uh, you know, uh, unceremoniously uh, quitting that happened just recently is Magic Johnson stepping down. So can you take us inside of what it's like being in the front office when someone steps down so unexpectedly, and where do you now take a franchise in the new direction? And also, how do you kind of sell that to the fans that everything is going to be okay? Yeah, you know, we have the privilege of any of these jobs. You know, things are going to happen. You know, uh, at the Dolphins, we lost Ryan Tannehill for the season in a non-contact. Uh, period in a preseason practice. You know, like things are going to happen all the time. Um, it's just the reality of when you're with the team, that's what's going to happen. And I think you always want to fall back on preparation and knowing that, like, you want to have contingency plans. So, like, if a player or a coach steps aside, you know, for whatever reason, and, you know, going back a number of years, you know, Al Gro came in, he wanted winning nine games that year in 2000. So, um, every, every situation is going to be different, but I think it's, you know, about preparation and, um, you know, things are going to happen. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to be around the game for a while, and I've seen a lot of different things. It's also interesting because as you're moving up the, the Jets ladder, you're also offered the Tampa Bay Buccaneers job in 2002, but you opt to stay with the Jets. How tough of a decision was it for you at that point in your career not to take a head job somewhere else and, and stay with the Jets? Yeah, I was in a great situation at the time. Um, you know, Terry Bradway was a GM. He was great to me. Herm Edwards. You know, uh, I believe we were in five years with the playoffs three times. We had a really good nucleus. Um, so it just, you know, it was the right decision at the right time. You know, we mentioned in the open the success you had here with the Jets. Um, and, you know, 
all you know, the playoffs, the AFC championships, by any yardstick, that is a tremendous success. However, in New York, fans measure success by championships. So how much external pressure is it for the GM of a Jets franchise that hasn't been to a Super Bowl for 50 years to, to be the guy that brings a, a Super Bowl appearance to the fan base? Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, there was certainly, you know, pressure, you know, be it media fans, but I can tell you no one puts more pressure on on yourself than you. You know, it meant a lot to me to have that position, to work hard, to work with incredible people that were smart, engaged, that were, you know, to, to this day very good friends of mine. And, you know, I wanted to lead the franchise, you know, to a Super Bowl for a lot of reasons, but nothing put more pressure on me than myself and the expectations that I had. So, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of eyeballs on you when you sit in that seat, you know, for a New York team, especially an NFL team. Um, but it really starts with yourself and, you know, the bar you set and what you want to achieve. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned a lot of eyeballs. And in New York, the, the sports media, it, it just 24-7, you know, ESPN, FAN. And Sports Talk Radio, throughout your you know tenure, kind of pushes a narrative. And you look at the drafts you had, one of which I'm actually wearing my Darrell Rivas jersey today. You look at the hire uh, of Rex Ryan. It's clear that you were so much more than just a salary cap guru, but yet that was the narrative that was pushed a lot. How frustrating was it for you to hear that, knowing that you you had a, a, a broader skill set than just a capologist? You know, um, again, I think it's going back to what we talked about earlier. You could really only worry about you know yourself and what you could control, and earning the respect of the people in the building every day. And certainly, you know, that's how I got started in my career. But um, you know, it's really what you make of your opportunities, and you know, whatever you walk of life you're in, like. You're always trying to better yourself and improve yourself and increase your skill sets, and that's really what I did. You know, I had a chance to be the pro director, the assistant GM. I kind of had everyone's job working my way up. So, you know, again, I came in one way, but I, like I said, I had a chance to do other things, and ultimately, you know, I was held accountable by, you know, being at the top of, you know, two different organizations and, you know, having final say at one of them. So um, in terms of what the perception was, you know, there's a great action. Be like, worry about what you can control because there's so much you can't, especially you know in this industry, and especially you know just in terms of what you know perceptions may be. Yeah, they they talk about different skill sets and different things. They talk about capologists, important the cap talk, but people understand scouting. How do you balance? Which is more important? Does it change from year to year, given what's out there? Which which is the the more important skill to have in helping to build a team and build a winner? Yeah, I, like I, I feel like they're they're all important, and you know I frequently refer to the job as you know being the point guard of information. And you try to take everyone's opinion and their varied you know skills and responsibilities, and try to put the whole picture together. Um, that's what's so so important is you know trying to look at you know medical or sports psychology or you know the player evaluation itself, and you know from a strategic planning standpoint, like how much you're going to spend and you know, trades, like there's so much that goes into it. So I think the key really is to be a great listener and then try to formulate the best plan possible. Before we get into the draft and, and what goes into it from an organizational standpoint, what is the thing that you're most proud of uh, with, from your time with the Jets? You know, it's funny. Um, I, I think, you know, obviously the wins and our, our win-loss record and the count, you know, the playoff appearances, but when uh, Coach Case got the job, I remember speaking to him and saying, hey, 
you know, you're really going to like the trainer or you're going to like the strength coach or the player development guy or the video people, like the security, like all these people that are there, they're people that um, basically a lot of them I had hired and they're still there and they've kind of withstood the test of time. And that was just a real nice validation for me that um, we had done so many good things for so long and there's so many great people that are still there. And people don't even realize that that whole move to Florham Park and the whole training center was under, you know, under your guidance as well. All right, so yeah. let's talk what goes uh, into draft prep from a front office. So, you know, how many people from the front office are involved, and how early does that involvement start prior to the next year's draft? Yeah, it usually starts on uh, Memorial Day, and um, you, you get the list. And it really starts with uh, your area scouts. They go out and they're collecting a lot of information. And, you know, most notably they're collecting information about their background, the player, like how hard they work, how important football is, what kind of teammate they are. And then um, your player personnel director, your college scouting director, they'll be out as well. And then um, as the season ends, there'll be all-star games like the East-West game, the Senior Bowl, and that'll lead to the Combine. And really from the Combine on, like, the coaches will be involved as well. And then you try to balance everyone's opinion to put a final grade on. One of the things I talk about is, you know, when, when a player gets a final grade, it really is an organizational effort just in terms of everything that goes into it for 11 months. And, again, the security director has a say in the sports psychology and medical, um, on and on and on. So there's so much that goes into it that it really takes a whole organization to do it. You know, when people go out and you look at the combine and things that happen at the combine, they go out there and, and they're, they're in shorts and not in pads. How, what, what are the things that are important to look at? You, look, you know, I talked years ago about the Wonderlick test, and he did great on the Wonderlick test or bad on the Wonderlick test. I mean, why was that important at that point? What are the things that you think are most important to look for from the combine? Is it how you run the 40? or you know, Which of the things really jump out at you to check the biggest box for you in looking at that? Yeah, by far the most important thing is going to be the interviews at night when you get to talk to them. Um, but, you know, in terms of on-field, like, you want to see their movements. Again, certain positions like running back, you know, I don't think the time speed is as important. But um, certainly, like, their movement skills, if they're a receiver, like how they're catching the ball. But, again, you know, they're obviously with quarterbacks they don't know very well. So it's it's just another way, like, it's another check and balance. And, you know, you mentioned the Wonderlist test. If, if their test is, you know, abnormally, you know, on the range, you know, in extreme, either really high or low, you're going to do more than one But, if, you know, again, common sense applies too, which is if he's a good kid, he was a good player at a good school, and he had a reasonably, his, you know, Wonderlick test score was within reason, then you're not going to spend a lot of time on it. You just check the box and move on. It's also interesting because over the years you hear different organizations and they have different mantras. So a lot of them are best player on the board and a lot of them are the player that fills our needs. So who within the organization? Is the general manager the guy that sets that tone or is it overall organization? How is that determination made when you go into a draft? Yeah, you know, usually those decisions are made, you know, three or four months ahead of time where, you know, you're trying to blend hey, you know, we're going to need a linebacker, and free agency is really strong on a linebacker, but not in the draft. Like, you really want to try to fine-tune those decisions months ahead of time, if you can. And then you try to take the best player, and obviously the tiebreaker is going to go to the need. But if we're doing our job well in the front office, you're going to go into the draft with as few needs as possible. So how much weight 
do you give to where a player played? To the program they were in, whether you know it was Alabama or Ohio State versus somebody you might be even say, let's get to this draft at a Duke, not quite a reputation football school. How much weight do you play, put on the program they came from and how they did within that program? Yeah, obviously, you know, the, the better the program, the easier it is to evaluate them, and you know, um, you know, just in terms of seeing them going against good competition. If they're good players there, you're taking a lot of the guesswork out. Um, with that said, though, like I think we've seen more and more small school, you know, players make it for whatever reason. Um, so I think you just have to be that much more diligent in, you know, your preparation and your evaluation. That's where all-star games can make a big difference. You know, if they play well there where it's not too big for them, then, you know, that's another, um, again, another, like, cross-check. So I think the benefit of the doubt goes to the big schools. But, you know, we saw, like, Titus Howard this year. You know, Alabama State going the first round to the Houston Texans. How much weight do you give to finding the, the sort of the diamond in the rough? The, 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 you know, do you have somebody assigned to sort of trolling the small schools, looking in the weeds to see the player who maybe in the fifth round or sixth round is the surprise from the school you never heard of? Yeah, you know, that's usually like the younger scouts who are like working up. They're going to deal with some of the, you know, smaller areas or lesser known schools and try to get them integrated into the discussion. And sometimes they may be an undrafted free agent. Um, you just don't know where they're going to come from, like, you know, a Danny Woodhead, for example, you know, when we were at, at the Jets. So um, that's where also you want, like, strong area scouts for them to be experts in their geographic regions. You know, it, it's funny because in, in promoting my Before 94 Ranger book, every day I post, you know, the daily news from the specific game of the season. So when they were playing against the Islanders, you know, around this time of year when the draft was, just, you know, in retrospect, when you look at things, all right, so the back page is the story about the Ranger Islander game, all right, when it, they tied up the series. And in a small little box, Bill Select Cousineau is number one. Surprise giant pick, unknown quarterback, okay? Jets tackle, All-American Lions, all right? So that unknown quarterback was Phil Sims. So yeah. it's just so interesting that, you know, we make all this analysis and we write these things and you never know how it's going to play out. And what AJ was saying is about these diamonds in the rough. You know, so much emphasis is always put on that first round. But, you know, when we're talking diamonds in the rough, how do you find those guys in the third and the fourth round where they're out of nowhere and they become all pros? You know, Tom Brady. Right. Yeah, again, it's just it being you know thorough in your process and preparation, and um, you know a lot of your starters are going to come from the second, third, and fourth round. And you know, for years at the Jets, it felt like that that fourth round was so good to us, like Brad Smith, uh, Leon Washington, uh, Jason Fabini. Uh, I just felt like for years there, the fourth round was our friend, and uh, you know we we had good luck there. But it, the it has round, to do a lot with, with again Lawson. you know your personnel department and being thorough and being prepared. All right, so with the number one pick this year, the Arizona Cardinals, for the second year in a row, all right, they take a quarterback, Kyler Murray from Oklahoma. The same Kyler Murray who was the Oakland A's number nine pick overall in the first round. So, you know, I get they want to move on from Josh Rosen, who had question marks about his passion to play the game. So now why do you take a kid that really, if he sits down and thinks about it, all right, longevity-wise, money-wise, Health-wise, baseball might really be the better option for him. Um, and plus the fact, 
Here's a kid who's 5'11". Historically, 5'11 quarterbacks... They say 5'11". Right. He may be 5'8". Right. Historically, shorter quarterbacks do not do that well. So were you surprised about that pick and everything that went into what the Cardinals are doing? Uh, a little bit, you know, and also just from a standpoint, like they could have had a front seven pl- pressure player, be it Josh Allen, Nick Bosa, Quinn Williams. So, you know, I think they need to call those a dynamic athlete. They have a vision, you know, him and the head coach, uh, Cliff Kingsbury. So um, that's going to be you know, the face of their franchise. And I think it's always a little dangerous to give up on young players early because you just don't know, you know, how Josh Rosen is going to turn out. You know, to me, the only grade you can give him is, you know, a grade of incomplete. So the 49ers, picking number two sometimes is great because, it, you know, if the guy that everyone says is the number one goes ahead of you, no one can complain. You know, if you, if you go number one and you pick the guy and he's, you know, is not good, you always get the heat. So they drop down to number two, so it's a good spot. You looked at any pre-draft rankings, the best two players on the board at that point were Boser and Williams. 49ers, as a result, got arguably the best player in the class at number two. And, you know, the fact that Bosa also, like you said, it blends the need as well as the talent. So that was a home run for them. As a GM, there's always the chance that the player you want might get chosen prior to your pick. When you're sitting there, how much anxiety is there that, listen, they want, you know, they want Bosa, but granted, number two, you still have a good choice. But if, if Bosa was their guy, and that day they don't know the Cardinals are going to, to go with Murray, is there a lot of anxiety? I have to imagine that's got to be like, until that announcement's made, you've got to be dying. Oh, yeah. No <laughs> doubt about it. There's definitely a fair amount of... Uh... Anxiety, but you know, again, you fall back on your preparation, guys, and you know, whatever happens, you have to be prepared. You certainly, you know, if you're picking three, you know, typically there's two players you love. If you're picking ten, there's eight, and you always hope, you know, one falls for you, and you got to be prepared to turn in a card. And sometimes, going back to your scenario, if you're San Francisco, if Bosa goes one, you know, your next best option may be just to trade out. Interesting. So, so one of my favorite sports movies is Draft Day. Yeah, it was great. Actually, and, it was great. And how how realistic is uh, Draft Day? Is a movie? <laughs> yeah, I mean parts are, but like obviously you know that was like it was dramatized for yeah. you know movies, but you know parts of it are you know there's a lot of drama, there's misinformation. You know, again, you're trying to collect the best information you can for your team and try to ignore the noise. So. Um, it's uh, there's some some relevance to it, but obviously you know you got to take a lot of that with a grain of salt. There's a lot of talk in in the lead up, especially to this year's draft and, and to, to Gettleman in particular. You know when they say this, say that. How much of things are smoke screens? There's a guy you really want, but you don't want the other guys to know what you say. You want the other guy. How much of that actually goes on is real? Uh, I think some of it does, but I really try not to pay too much attention to it. I just try to put my head down, work hard, and create as many options as possible. You know, I know the year we were trying to trade up uh, for Sanchez in 09, we know uh, Mangini had the uh, fifth pick with, uh, with Cleveland, and we were trying to figure out what Seattle was going to do at four because Pete Carroll was there, and, you know, we heard everything under the sun, like, oh, From Sanchez USC, will yeah. definitely be there when you pick, or he'll definitely be gone. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can also drive yourself a little bit crazy in terms of, you really don't know until you know 
it's your turn to you know, pick a player. What's well, also interesting now with, with the internet and Twitter, everyone's trying to get the scoop and everyone has a source. Like for the Jets, there's like a story out there that is a little intrigue as well because they're saying that you know the new defensive coordinator Greg Williams really wanted Al, uh, Ed Oliver, the defensive tackle out of Houston, as the player he wanted on his defensive line. Oliver eventually fell to number nine, is with a division rival, you know, Buffalo now. What are your thoughts on what the Jets did here with, with Williams? And if your defensive coordinator wanted someone else and you went in a different direction, is that a problem? Yeah, I think Quinn Williams could be a great player. I think that was a really good pick, you know, that all those players, you know, Josh Allen, um, Williams, Oliver, I think they're all going to be really, really good. You know, I think it's just be on the same page to say, like, hey, if we take Williams, what's the role going to be? If we take Allen, what's the role going to be? So um, I'm sure they had those discussions. All right, we, we really appreciate the amount of time you're taking with us. We're going to give you two more before we let you go. Giants pick initially was, you know, similar – you know, well, to, it's similar <laughs> to, to the Jets picking right. a quarterback, and everybody thinks they're taking Dan Marino. Right. And even the commissioner says. Yeah. <laughs> right. So a little bit of a head scratcher. You know, and, and a lot of people felt, and you mentioned some of the guys that were still on the board, you know, Allen, Oliver, and, and they go with a signal caller, and, and a lot of people felt that he'd still be available at 17. Um, but the Giants now have been talking this guy up as he's the heir apparent to Eli. He's going to be the next quarterback when Eli's time is done. So do you feel that he's got the, the mental makeup, number one, to, to be – listen, that's, those are tough shoes to fill. Even though here in New York Talk Radio, as the years go on, Eli's legacy seems to take a hit every day, uh, and the backup quarterback is always the sexier quarterback. But do you think he's the right – quarterback for the Giants? Yeah, you know, look, it's going to play out over the next couple of years. And if he went 6 or 17, if he's a good quarterback, it certainly it won't, it won't matter. Um, so I know a lot's been made of it. I actually think the decision, what's interesting to me is going back a year ago, would you rather Passing have Sam, Sam Darnold and let's say Josh here. Allen or Saquon Barkley and Daniel Jones. And I think the fact that Jones and Barkley excuse me, Jones and Darnold are in the same stadium. will be really fun to see how it plays out. But in terms of, like, Gettleman's decision, guys, if they're, if they're convicted about Jones, you know, you've got to take him at six from a standpoint of we all think it's likely he'll be there at 17, but you really you never know. If they think this guy is that good, I can understand why they did it. Lastly, the team that had the best overall draft this season and why? Wait, can you say I just lost your say, say oh. that again, please? Which team do you think had the best overall draft and why? Oh, I thought it was Jacksonville because I thought they got, you know, three three quality stars. You know, Josh Allen, who I think is going to be really special. Um, he's going to come in and, and be a pass rusher from day one. And um, they lost, you know, Dante Fowler a year ago. I think he's going to be an impact player. They took Juwan Taylor in the second round, who's going to start for them at right tackle. Doug Marone's a offensive line. Aiden. I think he'll do a fantastic. And then they took a guy, Josh Oliver, in the third round, who's a really good pass-receiving tight end who could be the, sort of like the Zach Ertz for Nick Foles in Jacksonville. So I think coming out of it with three starters, they filled three huge holes, and they got premium positions and an offensive tackle and a pass rusher. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for your time tonight. We really appreciate the insight that you've given us into what goes into a draft. And more importantly, thanks so much for your input and making the Jets, for me, for that period, watchable, because there have been many years for me, a season ticket holder for years, where they weren't wide. Listen, I go back to... Go back uh, to the Kotite years. I go even further. <laughs> I, I go back to you know Al Woodall taking over for you know Joe Namath, so it yeah. was a little tough. Very cold, didn't Shea, back in those days. So I appreciate it, Mr. T. Okay, guys. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. Awesome. Mike Tannenbaum.